This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Shareable. My name is Jeff Gibbard and I'm your host. And today I have with me somebody who I've been itching to get on the podcast for like, I don't know, probably about like a year at this point, probably a little bit more than a year. Uh, So today my guest is Christina Blacken and she is the founder of The New Quo, which I'll let her explain better than me so I won't butcher it. Uh, She is also somebody whose work in narrative intelligence I find absolutely fascinating. She is somebody who I look to as a guide, as a resource. I am a total fanboy. Like if you look at my Facebook activity, it's like, it's a little bit borderline creepy about how much I love Christina's stuff. But uh, I finally have her here live in the flesh over Zoom to talk about all the things. Christina, welcome to the show. And please do a better job of introducing yourself than I just did. (laughs) I don't know if I could top that. I've never had a fanboy before. I feel very honored. This is great. Um, Well, my work exactly is around what you were saying, narrative intelligence, which is this tool in my mind that we can use to change behavior, to shape companies, to build more inclusive practices. And I do that in two different ways, which is trainings for companies who want to get their ish together pretty much. I don't know if you curse on your podcast, but (laughs) we do whatever we want, baby. That's really the goal. And particularly around how do you have more inclusive cultures essentially. And I also use storytelling for founders who want to tell their stories better and to really persuade and change people's minds when it comes to new status quo breaking ideas. So I'm really a consultant, a public speaker. I also have a podcast. It's doing all the things, but at the center of it is storytelling and narrative intelligence as this tool for change. Awesome. Well, I forgot to mention that, that your podcast, Sway Them in Color, is like absolutely fantastic. And not only that, but you often treat your listeners to a song or two. Uh, (laughs) Musical portions of your show are really just wonderful. I'm like, wow. So just to add that to like the list of talents. um, So I would encourage, I'll put that in the show notes as a link to your podcast. Um, When you first kind of said narrative intelligence, I kind of thought I knew what that meant. I really did. Like, I was like, oh, I get it. Stories, intelligence, they connect somehow, use stories to be, I was like, I get it. And then I did your workshop more than just bodies. Is it just more than just bodies in the room? Was it? Yes. Yeah. So I did that and you actually put it into action for me. Can you tell people kind of how you kick off that workshop? Because I would be very interested to hear how you talk about it, but I want to actually share my experience of going through it. Well, thank you for bringing that workshop up. I want to take a step back and talk about the story behind how I discovered narrative intelligence, because it's a term my friend put me onto. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a strategy session with him and was explaining to him my work. I was like, well, you know, storytelling is this really critical thing that shapes our behavior and our practices and biases. And I want people to uncover their stories and to shift them. Some stories are good. Some are not so good. And as I was explaining the process to him, he was like, did you know that's pretty much narrative intelligence? And I was like, oh, what's that? Is this a term that you just made up? He was like, no, 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 I didn't make this term up. It's essentially a term that was coined in the 1970s by artificial intelligence researchers. And their whole goal was essentially to get artificial intelligence to operate more like human brains because the human brain organizes everything in narrative. It's the way that we remember things. It's the way that we make decisions. It's how we attach meaning to seemingly sometimes meaningless events. And so I started to dig down the rabbit hole and saw that this narrative intelligence conversation had kind of spread out from AI into all these other areas, including 
leadership and culture building, which is still sort of new. And so now with a lot of the workshops, the ones that you, you just referenced, which was called Bodies in the Room Aren't Enough, Story, Identity, and Leadership. And it was really about how do we use the power of self-reflection and narrative inquiry to unpack our beliefs, our behaviors, and ultimately how we can either become more inclusive, have deeper connection and meaning with each other, or essentially have a big disconnect and misunderstanding between each other. And narrative intelligence, I think of it sort of like emotional intelligence. It's inbuilt because we all start telling stories, even as young as three years old, kids start to tell stories, even if they're nonsensical and you're like, what? And then the alien did what? Who? Like it just comes out of us. And it's a skill that can be improved over time. So really your ability to understand how narrative has impacted your own behavior and also how to leverage it to shift and change other people's behavior is the core of what narrative intelligence is. So you can improve it over time. It's not the sort of, you know, fixed, finite, fatalistic thing. It's more of a tool of communication that humans use all the time. So is it, um, it's interesting because the way you described it with the AI actually, actually just shifted how I even even experience that uh, exercise that you do at the beginning of your workshops, because it would seem to me that based upon that, that what it's actually trying to get to is how to create sort of like self-centered protagonists, right? So like the, the narrative portion of it, all of our stories are centered around ourselves, like they're self-centered narratives, right? Or, or am I misunderstanding that? Because I would assume that if they were trying to program an AI to think in stories, they'd have to think in their own stories so that they had sort of almost like a sentience, a, a sense of self. Yes and no. I think it's broader than that. I think some of the stories or reflections are actually the opposite of understanding why you perceive others the way that you do based on your experiences and perspective. So it can be shifting and reframing certain experiences through narrative. So an example of that is one of the questions I ask in my workshops is around what were some of the examples of early leadership you experienced growing up? What did they look like? Who are they? And then how do you think that impacts how you show up now when it comes to your perceptions and assumptions about who can be a leader? And making that connection between past and present is a narrative exercise because you had a narrative from your past that you have to conjure and remember and piece together. And then you have to connect the dots between what that past was like and how it might influence what you're doing now. And that sort of connection piece and that bridge is really what narrative intelligence is. It's giving you a container to essentially see how did beliefs and values of specific events and experiences get transported into your beliefs and practices now? And the, the powerful and also scary thing about narrative is it's so subversive. Like there's so much of it that we pick up and it becomes unconscious and automatic habits that we're not even conscious of. And we think that we're not that persuaded by it when in fact there's lots of studies, even right now when it comes to the political sphere that we're in and how much social media has actually really exacerbated people's perceptions and their biases. It's pretty wild to see how powerful narrative is, even though we think, oh, it's a story's just that little thing you do sometimes or you want to be entertained or distracted. And it's like you are consuming so many narratives on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis from family, friends, partners, the media, your education, et cetera, that you're not even aware of how much it's shaping your thinking. So that's really what it's about. It's like, how can you leverage it in multiple ways and in different scenarios to shift behavior? And even a lot of therapy, if you think about talk therapy, for example, a lot of it is narrative examination. So you're examining you're examining your past narratives and experiences, connecting it to now, and even reframing narratives you might have about who you are. 
So a lot of it is, you know, C- CBT, for example, is about reframing certain cognitive distortions or limiting beliefs or ruminating thoughts. And that's all literally taking that narrative you have and shifting it to be something else or attaching a new story to an event. So it's all, you know, based in psychology, essentially, but it's really fascinating. And it's a growing field. I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their minds around narrative and how much it does shape who we are and how we show up. And the unfortunate part is the dark sides of narrative is what people usually see. So that's, you know, convincing people to buy things they don't need or, you know, tapping into the really fear-based sort of, you know, monkey brain needs of people's fears in terms of like convincing them that they need to resist change. So I think we see a lot of that and the positive sides of storytelling we don't see as much outside of entertainment. Well, just from my perspective of like a positive story in that workshop, the thing I was most struck by speaking of like, you know, you know, the identity is the story we tell ourselves about who we are, right? And then for me, hearing other people's stories of situations that happen in their lives, you can't help but kind of empathize with the protagonist in that story, them, and put yourself in that. And now all of a sudden, you're living an experience outside of yourself and seeing what must have been like for them to potentially um, have a similar experience to you. Like if you were to ask everybody about a common event, like something like 9-11 or anything that like we all have in our shared consciousness, everybody's got a different relationship to it. And then that seeing how other people relate to that helps you to see things from a different vantage point than we typically do, which is through our own. So I was really struck by that in your workshop. And it's one of the reasons why I found it so impactful was, I mean, aside from being like the only guy in that whole thing, which for me was kind of like an interesting experience of being like an only um, it was really cool to hear everybody else's experiences and like really try to try to try that on and think like what that must have been like to like not just have that one experience, but to live that. Yeah, you're bringing up such a beautiful point that's called narrative transport. And this is the geeky science part of that, which I love about it. So to give more context to the listeners in the workshop, I ask every individual to share a time where they felt othered in their past related to their identity. So it could be about race or gender or class, pretty much in a part of your identity that's primary that people can make a snap judgment about immediately. And they're given a lot of guidelines so the conversation can be safe and productive. I do not recommend going out and just having willy-nilly conversations about kind of deep identity uh, topics. But what's great about that and the point that you brought up is ultimately being able to adopt new perspective and to kind of take on the other person's narrative, sort of like a robe. So you can be like, ooh, what does this feel like? Or this is interesting to have this experience that I never could have before. And that process is narrative transport, which is why we love story, because it allows us to literally be physically, mentally, and emotionally transported in ways that we could maybe not access ourselves. And there's been a lot of interesting studies about that. So when you hear a story, that's why we're in the movie theaters, the entire movie theater around you sort of drops away. You're not really paying attention to the theater. You're deeply into the story, whatever images are, are being brought up or fired into your brain, the values and experiences of that story become your own and you feel like you're living it first and that's why it's so powerful and important to hear other people's stories about their identities because a lot of the time we don't get space for that you don't get to have those deeper conversations with most people in your life unless they're pretty close to you and so to meet somebody and to see how deeply layered an identity is past the surface is such a powerful experience and I've facilitated a number of discussions like that over the years now and what I always find fascinating is any assumption that I have made is always challenged in those story circles, because we all make immediate snap judgment assumptions about people. As soon as we see somebody, we're already categorizing them and assuming what their characteristics might be or how they might show up. And as soon as people share their stories, you're like, oh, 
I didn't expect that part of your story or I didn't realize you had that experience or this particular thing. That's why it's like literally peeling the layers of an onion and your eyes might start watering up in the same time because there's so much beauty and empathy that can be happening in that experience. But that's why I love it. I think that's the part that's the most beautiful is being able to adopt new perspective that you may not have experienced yourself and also to see the universalities that we can have, even if we're very different at times. So I want to go two directions with this, or really, I guess one direction. I don't know how to explain this. I want to go big on this first. So you brought up a couple different points here and, you know, in a workshop, you might have one person see something from a different perspective or all the participants. And you're talking about all of the stories that we're consuming every day on social media and how that may shift our perception and even our identities. How important is narrative intelligence in your mind? How big does it go as a potential, I don't want to call it a solution to, but like as, as a, as a a component of thinking about how we shape what it means to live a good life and like what it means, like how we live in this society, in this community, in this world, how big does that go? How big is the impact? How far reaching is it? How like go real big for me? Cause I want to then kind of like focus the lens back in and go very, very practical and small steps on it. But, but at the biggest, how important is narrative intelligence? Not just a parlor trick to like get to slightly know someone better. Right. I love this question. And honestly, I can't overstate how powerful and important narrative intelligence is. And I think low levels of narrative intelligence have led us to the problems we have right now. So if you think about racism, for example, racism is a series of narratives that we've attached to a color cast, a color cast system of if your skin looks like this, here are the stories we attach to that. And those stories have social, economic, mental, physical implications. If your skin is darker, here are the stories that we've attached to that. And these are actual narratives taught in school, media, the law, all of that has been stories, literally characters and tropes and stereotypes. And that has specific, very visceral impacts, right? So not being able to be conscious of that leads to the issues we have now, which is people believing that racism isn't a thing, it doesn't exist, you know, colorblindness, all this stuff. And at the end of the day, if we can't get people to become more conscious and become more aware of how they're ingesting those sorts of stories, we can't stop those sorts of problems around power and around scarcity and around fear. So literally, For example, some of the cultural values that we have in a white supremacist culture have been deeply embedded through story. The idea of perfectionism, the idea that we have to be fiercely competitive and we can't trust each other. The idea that this is this is zero sum game, that if some people gain certain resources, other people will lose certain resources. And all of that's embedded deeply through the narratives that we pick up in our families of origin through our education system, through the TV that we consume, the books that we read. I remember seeing a post a couple of months ago on Facebook where someone shared one of their favorite children's books. And as I'm looking at this book, I'm like, this is the most racist shit I've ever seen. It was literally this strange story about this like little black boy. And it had all these very weird stereotypical tropes that if you publish this in a children's book today, people would be like, this is crazy. And everyone was like, oh, I love that book as a kid. It was so heartwarming. It was just, it reminds me of like really feel good times when I was five. And these were mostly all older white people talking about this book. And they didn't even realize and understand that the story that they loved had deeply problematic stereotypes about Black people in it. 
And it became something that they read and something they remembered as a child and it helped them sleep at night, right? So without that consciousness, we cannot shift the behaviors and the practices. So I think narrative intelligence as an equity tool is imperative. I also think it's a leadership tool. It's imperative because how most people are led is through narrative and story. Some of those stories can be completely false and people have literally been led to their deaths. If you think about cults, for example, and how a cult works, it is all visceral storytelling and playing on people's deep needing for belonging and meaning and all the things that people crave. And they warp storytelling in certain ways to tap into those emotional centers for people and to get them to do things that they felt like they probably would never do. But now that they're so deeply in it and so deeply emotionally tied, they're taking risks, they're losing family and potentially going towards a really bad outcome. And so I think it affects so many societal things. It affects how we treat each other. It affects our relationships. So at this bigger level, my kind of goal and idea is how can every single person understand the immense amount of power that they have when they become conscious of narrative and how it affects themselves and what narratives they hold and also the ways that they leverage narrative to convince and inspire other people. Because as a person who has any sort of visibility, you have the power to either perpetuate stereotypes, assumptions, scarcity-based thinking and values, and that happens a lot, or you have the power to shift narratives and to do differently. Now, I'm not saying that's easy to do because anytime you do something unconventional that challenges what's happening, there are backlashes. There are people who don't like it. I'm not even that visible and I've already gotten hate mail and crazy emails and people saying things to me because they're feeling challenged and don't want things to change. There are some people who have a vested interest in things not changing. So to answer your question, it's a long rambling thing to say. It is massive. It is deeply, deeply underappreciated. But I think people understand that when it comes to marketing, right? If you think about the marketing machine, all of its storytelling, right? Million, billions of dollars a year go into constructing narratives of all types around products and things and getting people to be convinced to buy those things. It is a narrative-based industry and it drives every single other industry you can think of because of advertising and sponsorship and how our you know capitalist system works. So people understand it very well when it comes to capitalism and money, but they don't understand it in all these other ways and how it affects our behaviors and how we show up. So I'm hoping to add to that expansion and helping people understand this is not just a cute little thing that you do for like a marketing campaign. It shapes society. It shapes culture. It shapes community. It shapes how people show up and what they do and what kind of inequities or terrible things we do to each other or the ways that we can actually build new futures and new ideas and new possibilities. So I think it's humongous. So how much of narrative intelligence overlaps with media literacy. And when you look at, you know, as you were talking about narrative intelligence and all of the stories that we subconsciously consume, I began thinking about the fact that there are way more stories happening or way more stories available to us than what we are able to consume or that are placed in front of us, which leads me to be curious about how power and um, power intersects with narrative intelligence. So like narrative intelligence being the, the skill, I assume, to to differentiate narratives and sort of intelligently understand what we're being told versus what's real, what's not, et cetera. We're being force-fed different narratives. We don't necessarily have the option to choose amongst different narratives. So like all of the narratives that the media throughout the 80s and 90s, let's say, like fed about Black people, there were narratives about 
extraordinary people that were doing extraordinary things that could have very well been in that place. It's like what I think about reality TV versus TED Talks, right? Like instead of having the Kardashians on TV, like why don't we have like people that are trying to solve climate change? But it's a whole nother thing. So I, I guess that the two-parter there that is what is the interplay between power and narrative intelligence? And then where does media literacy and narrative intelligence kind of overlap? Are they fundamentally different? Are they kind of two sides of the same coin? Is one a component of the other? I love these two questions because power is at the crux of all of this and we don't talk about it enough. And I think people think, ooh, power, that means there's some like evil, you know, crazy villain in the in a tower perpetuating like crazy narratives. It's not necessarily about that. I think any person that communicates in a way that's trying to persuade someone else of something is enacting power. And people do it every single day. Parents have to convince their kids, please don't put that pencil in your nose, right? Or there are people who have to convince their friends, why are you still dating this guy? This is the 15th time he's disappointed you, right? We are always having these constant back and forths of persuasion and trying to leverage stories to convince people of behavior change on these little scale sort of day-to-day interaction ways and also in these large ways when organizations put out certain things, even like you were saying about the kinds of media that we consume, there's an incentive towards negative media and negative narrative because of the brain. We are wired to be worst case scenario thinkers because evolutionary for a long time, we're like, listen, if I don't think about all the options, the sheet is going to come and tear me up when I'm outside, right? So we have this weird default into not seeing both positive and negative, or at least understanding that not everything is going to be worst case scenario. But we're fascinated by it, we're drawn to it. And so people have an incentive to put up a lot of really negative stuff and feed some of those worst sides of the ways that human beings can sometimes show up. But I think it really comes down to understanding that people have more power than they probably think they do because of their narrative intelligence. And they're typically not leveraging it in ways that could potentially inspire people or change minds or change thinking. They're usually using it for someone else's benefit. They're using it to help sell someone else's product, commit someone else of a sale. And I'm not saying that's all bad. I think it's great to collaborate and help people with other things, but there's more to power than just an official title. And people need to understand that their story is one of their most powerful tools. Anytime I've told my personal story, my past experiences, the things I've been through, the adversities I've overcome, the ideas that I've had, I've always gotten some level of result or some sort of impact from that. If I didn't leverage my own story in these ways as a tool, there's no way I could have built any kind of platform or built a company. And I'm a nobody. I'm not famous. I don't have an inheritance. I'm not rich. You know, like I've made a good, you know, living for myself as somebody who's built a business, but that power came from being able to leverage my own story. Then on the other side of it, the media literacy does come into this idea of understanding how to perceive what is happening in the story. Because once you become a, a conscious storyteller, you can see the different mechanisms and tropes and things that people are trying to perpetuate. So an example is stereotypes. Are you able to recognize them? Are you able to see this is a stereotype? It's a broad generalization. This is a lazy way of storytelling, right? And some people can't recognize that. Like those people I mentioned that were talking about the children's book earlier, they didn't recognize that those were stereotypes. They just thought it was a cute story. So I think media literacy is going to become a huge focus, especially for young people, where they have to consume so much more information than people ever had before and to discern what is the motivation of this information? 
what kind of stories are being shared in this, what stereotypes, who's benefiting, who's not benefiting, is someone being punched down in this? Is there only one particular demographic being uplifted in this story? What is the goal of the story? There's always a goal. There's always some sort of values. And being able to discern that is incredibly important so that they consume and can become aware and conscious and know what to leave behind, what to not necessarily buy into, and also what to support. And that does take some practice and some level of self-awareness and also just education around here's how to recognize this particular thing in a story. I think one way to study this is comedy. I think really smart comedians are able to tell universal jokes that don't rely heavily on stereotypes. A lot of lazy comedians, most of their comedy is, and you know, women, they love to blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, grandmas, they always over here falling down steps. Like it's always this broad generalization, which is lazy. I think it's funny because we want to immediately default into our tropes about people and groups because it makes us feel comforted. It's like a short circuit sort of way of understanding the world, but it's lazy. And I think comedians who are able to construct stories and experiences and universalities and absurdities and hyperbole without stereotype are incredible storytellers. So there's an example of, there are ways to be able to tell stories without relying on some of the lazy, shortcut, frankly damaging types of storytelling that we've seen throughout you know, history really and throughout different sorts of industries. So much there. And I want to make sure that we have time to talk about leadership, but just a quick observation before we pivot to leadership. It would seem to me that narrative intelligence is at a disadvantage to uh, powerful narratives that play to our sense of fear and reinforcing beliefs and not changing. And um, in when you talk about us having more power, it sounds it could sound a little bit like you're saying, like in a capitalist society, we have power as consumers to, to once we have narrative intelligence, to push for and demand and boycott things we don't want and, and, and support things that we do, to have um, media, to have solutions, to have environments that better meet our more informed, more thoughtful type of environment that we want to live in. So it's, it, I mean, so, so that's, uh, did I miss anything on there in my notes? Yeah. So it sounded a little bit like that's where our power lies, but that we are actually at somewhat of a disadvantage because you need mass narrative intelligence awareness that is resistant to that fear driven, reinforcing beliefs and tropes type of narrative to even be able to get over that hump so that we have more critical mass towards people that are not looking for that. That's a great observation. I think that's the the crux of the human experience and what we've been trying to solve for for centuries. This idea of fear and scarcity has created societies that have continuously collapsed. And it's an issue that we continue to have, right? This is why we have wars and we have resources that are ill-distributed where there's you know, what, 40 million people unemployed, but then there's billionaires who've made more money this pandemic than ever before. I think these these gaps are really come down to that over-amplified fear-based response to uncertainty. And so that's not necessarily narrative intelligence. I think it's more about what narratives are we attaching to our desires of understanding uncertainty? Because life as a human is kind of scary, right? Like there's, you literally do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can try to predict and assume that tomorrow I'm going to wake up, I'm going to eat a bowl of Captain Crunch and maybe I'll go swim. You know, you might have a plan and there's some days you get up and something wild happens, right? Like none of that stuff happens or something scary or bad might happen. And I think this pandemic 
is a great example. If you had asked me in January, did you know you're going to be locked inside for eight months and that you're going to wear a mask everywhere? And I'd be like, you're crazy, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? So it's really narrative intelligence is the step of that fear response. I don't think will be going away in our lifetime. I don't know how we get that out of our conditioning. But the next step is when I have a fear-based response, what narrative am I attaching to it? We have, we have the choice to say, I'm afraid, I'm uncertain. So I grab this narrative that feels comforting, which is Black people are criminals. So we need to make sure that the police force X, Y, and Z, right? That's the process of being fearful and scared and attaching a certain narrative for comfort. The other idea is I'm fearful and scared. And maybe if I had better relationships with certain sorts of people, I wouldn't feel as afraid. Maybe if I talked to my neighbors, I would feel more comforted and feel more supported. Like there's a, there's a path that we can take. And I think that's where narrative intelligence can play a role, which is we can't necessarily stop certain responses, but we can stop the sort of story we attach to that response and ultimately what happens because we attach that story. And that's the same thing. I bring it back to therapy, right? Which is you can't necessarily ever stop ruminating thoughts or negative thoughts. That's not the point. That's always going to potentially happen because our brains are just constantly grappling with things and making synaptic connections. But you can be like, okay, Christina, you had this thought you're going to die alone as a cat lady or something like you're scared, whatever, right? Is that true? Or is that just a story you're making up right now that you feel a certain way and that's okay to have that feeling? It doesn't mean it's fatalistic or it's the truth of what your life is. What's another story you can attach to this uncertainty? So I think that's the point. It's sort of a guiding post in a container and not necessarily something to solve for our, our human tendency to be scared. I think fear is a useful emotion. I think a lot of the conversation around fear can be very not useful. This idea of like, just don't be afraid. Just be, you know, be courageous. Never be scared. I'm like, that's not real because if you erase certain parts of human motion you can't experience the others right you can't have joy and excitement and and all these other wonderful beautiful things without those sort of sad emotions and sometimes fear is signaling something to you that okay something needs to change what needs to change so fear itself is not necessarily a horrible thing it's how we respond to fear it's if we over revere it and ignore every other emotion that's the issues we have right now we have a very fear-based fear-driven society and how we have solved for that is to say, hey, you're afraid of stuff. What you need to do is just collect a lot of stuff and like hoard it in your house and make sure that other people who look a different way don't get access to that stuff. I mean, that's literally the path that we've given to people. And I think narrative intelligence could be a way to potentially bridge the gap or to attach new ideas to these uncertainties in the sphere, essentially. And that's what I teach in a lot of what I talk about in my workshops and writing is how do we move from a culture of autopilot, which is this automatic fear-based path to a culture of curiosity, which is how do we have an open mind to be curious and to learn when uncertainty is in our in our faces? Because uncertainty is inevitable as a human. There are a lot of things that we can't predict, but we can change how we respond to uncertainty essentially. I love this because it's so it's simultaneously very individualistic and collective because as an individual, it empowers you to say like, I get to choose what this narrative is that as you were saying it, the thing that kept occurring to me is that um, you, you probably hear this a lot. Um, or if you've, you know, in speaker circles, they talk about this, that, you know, anxiety and excitement feel the same way in your body. And when you're feeling anxious about going on stage, you can actually reframe that and say, I'm very excited about it. Mm -hmm. And you can actually begin to shift what your story is about what that 
feeling is in your body. And in the same way, the way that you're describing it, it sounds like we actually have more power, not just on like a market driven level, but we have more power individually to not let the stories that have been force fed to us and around us dictate how we see the world. We can instead be more curious about it, choose new stories, learn new stories, and have a more holistic, complete picture of the world that's not driven by somebody else's, somebody else's motives. And that benefits kind of collectively. Uh, everyone. So I, I like that it's empowering at the individual level, but it's it's beneficial for the the kind of global level. Well, thank you so much for that beautiful summary. I'm like, yes, that's it. That is the core of what I'm trying to convey here. And, you know, I think it's um that it's beautiful that you made that connection between the individual and the collective because I think, especially with work around equity, there's an overemphasis on one or the other. So when ideas like the individual just needs to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and be self-sufficient. And that's how we solve for these issues. The other argument is there's a system issue. Let's focus on the system. Let's plug up the holes. And I think both have to happen at the same time. Like people do need to understand that your individual actions do ladder into the collective. So what you do, look at this pandemic as an example. I keep talking about this. And I'm sure people are like, I'm sick of talking about COVID, but I think it provides a good metaphor, which is, you know, Susie in Alabama, not wearing a mask, had an effect, a ripple effect on the rest of the country. It did. We had a prime example of individual specific actions having collective impacts, and we're experiencing it right now. The same way collectively how we didn't have a plan has also affected the individual. So it's gone back and forth, right? And it's been fascinating to me to see that this virus can spread exponentially. It can't be seen. And it can literally have an impact from one particular individual hundreds of miles away, making certain basic personal actions and touch me in New York City, for example. So I think the idea that any any issue we have as a species or society has to be looked at at both levels because the individual does ladder to the collective and the collective affects the individual. And I think for some people it's hard because we live in a binary world. We want black and white, fat or skinny. Like we want to have very clear delineated lines. And a lot of these issues are intersectional. They're complex. They have multiple prongs and multiple endpoints and outpoints, And that's messy. And I think a lot of people don't want to be in that. They're like, I just want a silver bullet solution. So an example is like, a lot of conversations I've had with companies about inclusion, they'll come to me and they're like, we're ready to do the work. We're so excited. We're going to do one town hall and it's just going to solve for everything. I'm like, this is not one training, one workshop, one town hall is not going to change your inclusion, your culture. That's It's just the it's truth. One copy for everyone. Of right. <laughs> company problems. <laughs> so I think that, thinking and I understand it. We want solutions. We want things happening now. We want them immediately. We want our Amazon prime within the next day. Like we are very immediacy based culture. And that's part of our problem is we can't slow down. We don't give space for complexity. We don't think about Twitter and how it operates. You can't have a productive conversation on Twitter in 140 characters. People literally get on there to scream at each other in 140 characters. And there's Sometimes I will say that Twitter can be a great place. Um, how much is it? Now they get 280. Now they, okay, 280. Obviously I'm out of, see, I'm out the loop. I don't even use Twitter enough. Um, but I think being able to have, create spaces, and that's what I'm excited about. How do we create space in people's lives to slow down, to self-reflect so they can become more conscious, and then to create space for them to connect with other people 
who are doing that same sort of process. And how does that allow them to do this reframing, this reframing that you beautifully restated, which is, okay, there's, there are narratives I picked up. Some of them don't make sense and they don't fit anymore. And I have to let them go. And what are the new ones I want to adapt about other people? There's actually a, I think I may have told you about this before. There's a study being done. I think it's out of the, uh, out of Yale, but that could be wrong, called My Primal Beliefs. And it's two researchers who essentially looked at a ton of different texts and societies and religious texts and all these other things. Yes, the, yeah. And it talks about these sort of core fundamental values that human beings can hold and how based on which ones you hold at the core of who you are, it completely changes how you see the world. Like some people see the world as a very scary and unchangeable place. Some people see the world as a place full of possibility and wonder and think about those two different spheres. So if you're operating from one or the other, you show up differently. Your conversations are different. Your relationships are different purely from the narratives that you've held at your core. And so I think that's the beauty of this, which is we can reframe. And what does that reframing look like? And does it require us to slow down in our day-to-day lives, in our practices, in our conversations? And can we make that space for that? And I think this time period we're in where people have literally been locked inside has created that space in ways that people never had. And so that's why we're seeing some of the dramatic shifts of consciousness and the excitement about social issues and more people sort of tuning in to things that have always been there that they're just now paying attention to. Yeah, 100%. I want to pivot this now to talk about leadership because I think there's a really, I'm curious about what your experience has been. You brought up sort of the work that you're doing in inclusion, and I know that you are dealing with companies on a a number of different levels. So I'd be curious to hear what are some of the inquiries that you're getting right now since everybody is trying to be woke at this moment? Like, what are some of the inquiries that you're getting that are um, like kind of like what is the pulse on what companies are really looking for? And then when you look at, how leadership factors into this, um, kind of what are you seeing? Are you seeing leaders who are really being this serious about this or trying to pay it lift service? What are the gaps in it? Like kind of like what's your lay of the land as it currently sits? So at the beginning of the summer, um, I had sort of an exponential increase of inquiries just coming in. I probably fielded at least 50 different proposals within like two to three weeks of people just asking for things and wanting requests and that sort of stuff. And they kind of fell in a, a couple of camps. One camp being the one I mentioned earlier, which is we want a town hall. Yeah. Like then no other plans. And then there are other people who are like, Hey, you know, we've done some trainings in the past. We do have a DEI plan. We just want to kind of go deeper in it or figure out more strategy. What do you recommend? What are the approaches that you have? And a lot of the clients that I have now, so I have a, a range of clients from like a startup who's in the CBD world to a pretty traditional, well-known consulting company to a tech app that reaches millions of people across the country. And all of them have sort of needed both the, the foundational training around bias and what it is and how it shows up and what it looks like. And also taking it a step further with prescriptive sort of strategies on how to build equity into their practices. How are they thinking about equity when it comes to recruiting and culture building and their creation process and their design process. And so I've, you know, pretty much put together those sort of strategy sessions for clients ultimately. And what's been really interesting for me is it feels like at least the people who are coming to me or maybe the energy I give off, a lot of them do seem very committed and the ones who didn't, the conversations kind of fell off early because I'm very clear and frank of what I work on and what I do and what I will and won't do. 
Um, and so I haven't had too many people who've been performatively trying to uh, attach themselves to this that's because good. that's a good thing. And then maybe they've gone somewhere else. Maybe they saw certain parts of what I do and was like, okay, maybe this is a little bit, you know, not necessarily the PR stamp thing that they're looking for. Um, but I've been, I've been seeing a shift in a way that was not happening in 2019. I think especially even for my work, because the methodology is kind of unique in the sense of, you know, storytelling and narrative intelligence is at the core of it. And people aren't used to seeing that in the space of, you know, leadership development or inclusion. They're used to seeing it in sales and marketing. So anytime I would bring up the methodology of what I do, they'd be like, oh, okay, like that's different. And in 2019, it was like, that's cute. In 2020, they were like, this sounds so interesting. And I had a lot of feedback of, your methodology really stands out to us because we want to have conversation. We want to have a deeper emotional thing beyond just the traditional, here's the concepts of bias and why it's important and why it's bad. Like that's not enough. So that actually really resonated with people in a way I hadn't seen before this year. And I think it is because of slowing down, wanting to reflect, wanting to go deeper that has allowed people to see the methodology as beneficial so I've been happy to see that. I don't know how much it'll keep up. You know, that I was calling it literally the black rush, like instead of like the gold rush, it was like the black rush. And there was a huge, I mean, I was getting inquiries every single week for weeks and weeks on end. And now it's sort of slowing down. That could be also because it's in a year, holidays are coming up, people are sort of solidified in their plans. So I'm curious as to will this energy and momentum continue? Will it just be sort of a, a peak trend? I don't know, but either way, I'll you know continue for it. But it's been interesting to see that shift in consciousness. Yeah. So as you know, I'm writing a book on leadership, uh, The Lovable Leader, due out January 2022. Hey. Uh, what I'm trying to do is make sure that in the book, there's, there's a lot of language around diversity, inclusion, representation, equity, making sure that all of the advice that's in there is not just solely like from the perspective of like a white dude who's been in a leadership role. And I also really try to identify that that leadership is not a title. Leadership is a is a practice, right? So I'm curious from the, the from the kind of the two tradition, I guess the two different definitions of leadership. What you've been seeing in terms of what's important to making sure that this work is successful. So from the traditional leader role, like somebody who has a defined leadership role, what are some some of the things that they can do that's important? And then what have you seen in terms of leadership? from people who are not in a leadership role that has been helpful in creating um, spaces that are more equitable and inclusive? So the first question, I think leaders have to really be bought into the idea that equity and, in and inclusion isn't just a nice to have, it's a must to be a functional, productive company in society. The companies I've had conversations with where the leadership's not really bought in, it makes it incredibly difficult because even if all the staff and everybody else underneath the executive suite really wants it, if leadership isn't bought in, then they can't really do any changes. They can't really you know, implement behaviors or practices that stick without some of the leadership really being bought into it. So I think the best things leaders can do is to literally endorse and be part of it and to be involved in the strategies around this and not to just delegate it off to you know a chief of diversity or some other going into the whole of your company that no one looks at or talks about and seeing it as a core part of your strategy and i think the leaders are able to do that it's more authentic there's less blowback because it's not about performative i did the right thing it's they actually care and the companies i've seen that they're just so much more effective they're moving much quicker Staff feel listened to and heard and respected. They're implementing practices and policies that actually make sense. And then from people who are not executive leaders, I've noticed that when there is a core advocate, 
that says, hey, we have a problem. And they ladder that problem up to leadership and the leadership is open to listening and collaborating, then the, the organization can shift that way. So I've seen people who've approached me being like, hey, I was the one who was like, our staff is not diverse enough or we're not really hitting our mark in the way that we should. And they would bring materials back to their leadership and sort of do convincing of, hey, I think this is something we need to look at and examine and put more energy into. And that can be effective, again, if leadership at the executive level buys into it. So I think it comes down to, you know, what are the core values that are driving this company? And if the core values genuinely are, I want to innovate, I want to create, I want to create a company that genuinely serves our community, they're going to choose differently than someone who, again, fear-based, scarcity-based. We don't have time for that. The The idea of, I don't have time to think about that stuff, you will literally completely torpedo your company if you're like, I don't have time for equity. Okay, that's cute. The world is not all the same. So if you want to survive in a rapidly changing world, you have to adapt. And there are companies who are doing that now, the, the old way of reacting and trying to correct things that have been wrong for a long time. You know, I had an organization approach me it was a pretty well-known uh, massive museum in New York City, and they had huge cultural problems that have been around for decades that they're just now starting to examine. That's much harder to fix than doing it the right way from the beginning. And the companies I've worked with that are like two years in or they're new and they're fresh, they have so much more flexibility to do it right instead of saying, oh, I guess we should fix this thing now because it's reached a breaking point. You know, it's literally like, breaking your leg and then walking on it until you can't walk anymore. And that's how some companies have approached this. So leaders who are conscious and bought in is really the the key of all of this and being invested in the idea that you as a leader have to have the ability to build culture and to connect with people not like yourself, or you're not really going to be able to survive as an organization. So the, the next place I would ask you about it is that doing it from the beginning and even doing it later, I think there's this interesting – I asked this question on an anti-racism webinar that I was on, and she didn't have an answer, and she, she told me she was going to get back to me. We're going to talk about it at some point. So I'm going to ask you, a lot of companies that are trying to do this kind of work are trying to do it for any variety of different reasons, right? Some are doing it to check the box. Some are doing it because they firmly believe it. But either way, the actions may wind up looking the same. And I think there's a fine line between what I guess you could define as like tokenism, like, look, we have one of these and one of these in our leadership versus like a, a, a fundamental belief in it. Do you think that there's anything that is sort of the secret sauce to make sure that you're not tilting into one I guess, tilting into the tokenism side versus the other? And, and I would imagine there's something in brand, something in like you know, really firmly, firmly establishing, like, here's who we are and what we believe that helps to make those, those efforts authentic. But like, what, what would you say is sort of like the, the key to doing it the right way so that it doesn't turn into a box checking activity? I think the key is for leadership to check their own biases. Because a lot of this is externally focused, right? Where people are like, the issue is the person over there wearing the Ku Klux outfit. We need to focus on that. And it's like, no, a lot of our issues come down to self-concept and whatever beliefs and biases you hold shape how you are a leader and shape how you implement policies and practices and projects. And if leadership doesn't do deep examining of their own values and their own biases, 
they will fall into tokenism, which you can really tell with most organizations. I mean, a great example of that is the Black Square thing that happened this summer. The amount of companies who are like, Black Lives Matter, Black Square, and like they have little to no equitable policies, practices, no diversity in their staff. They pay people like crap. I mean, you could literally have a laundry list of all the ways that they're very inequitable that's easily researchable. And if people can see that, it's clear it's tokenism. It's clear it's performative. And I think that comes down to self-awareness. As a leader, you have to check and be like, what are some ways that I have not really understood how my biases about gender and race and class and success and money have shown up in how I lead, have shown up in what I prioritize, have shown up in the people that I decide to hire and decide to develop and decide to give power. You have to take a step back. And I think a lot of my work is focused on people doing that self-examination and that self-evaluation because we don't spend enough time doing that. And also there's a ton of really interesting studies about how leaders who have a higher level of self-awareness are much more effective because however you perceive the world really deeply affects how you communicate. It affects how you take certain actions. And so I think that is the key. Without self-awareness, you do tokenize things because you're focused on external, performative, must check this box or else which I still, again, think comes down to a fear-based, scarcity-driven sort of approach and values. So if you dig at the deep root of it and you're like, oh, my values are pretty deeply entrenched in fear, how has that shaped the culture that I've created in this company? How has it shaped the kind of goals I've set? Then you can take a step back and maybe reshift some of those things. So I think that's where it comes down to. A lot of the time people are like, well, what are the practices? And the checklist is like, that's great. But if you don't know yourself and you're not aware of how you're showing up, all that will fall to the wayside. And I think that's why it's so important to have that deeper sort of self-work. And a lot of our society and, and our learning, if you think about the traditional learning approach, it is all externally based. It is all, you ingest lots of information. We tell you what to think. You regurgitate it back on a test. Some of that information you do need to consume. So you know that a stove is hot. You shouldn't touch it. You'll burn yourself, right? Like there's things you learn about how the world works that you need to understand. But understanding yourself and understanding who you are and what your values are and what you care about is left to your own devices, to your family's molding, to your community or in whatever else. And some people take a, their own path and do a lot of that work and it's great. And some people don't. And a lot of that is extra credit, right? You're not forced to do any of that self-development at all. Besides if you reach a breaking point or you're going through a major crazy crisis you're not really forced to do that. And I think that's where a lot of this work actually lies is that sort of deeper self-work. Another thing that I'm hearing from that that's interesting is the that it, when you brought up the kind of like the black square thing and then all the companies with the the laundry list of, of things is that there is a certain time element to it. And I've heard the expression, show us your receipts before. And I think that that sort of like, you, you're not going to be able to, fix your issue or prove that you're part of the team overnight. Like you actually have to put the work in and do the work. And it's interesting. I was also on a webinar not long ago. It was, a, it was, it was either, you might've been an equity workshop, um, but they were talking about how essentially like it doesn't actually even matter what's in somebody's heart to a certain extent. If, if the actions are being done and it's creating equity, that to a certain extent is enough in sort of a corporate environment. Like let somebody go home and throw on their, their white robes whatever. If they come to work and they're polite and they operate within the bounds of policy and they don't get in the way, like who cares what's in your heart? We're not here to change minds and hearts. We're here to, to change and create equity, right? So it's kind of interesting because the, the, there is a certain like, are you really bought in 
then there's the other side of it. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're bought and if you do the right thing anyway. So I don't know. It's just a whole, a whole series of things. Yeah. And I can add to that, that I think there are people who have to do things because of social pressure. And I think that's okay. Like a lot of human beings are like, uh, the group's doing it. Guess I got to do it. Cause you don't want to be the outcast. Right. And I think if we can make equity to the point where if you're not doing it, you look like a clown. That's great because that's the only way that some people will change their behavior. I don't think there are some people who will change their behavior without social pressure and without community affirmation. But the social pressure and community affirmation comes from people who are bought in because most of those individuals will only apply that sort of pressure if they actually believe in it. So I do think there's a tipping point where we need the majority of people to change their hearts and minds and to be committed. If we didn't need that, we wouldn't be in this issue right now. We wouldn't keep repeating the same problems again and again, decade after decade after decade after decade, if, if we had more of a buy-in and a genuine changing of beliefs and behaviors. And so I think that balance is needed for both because there's some people who will never change. And then there are people who are on the precipice who are open to change and they just need some guidance and some feedback and some learning to be advocates. And I think that's where we should spend most of our time. I could legit talk to you for like seven hours about anything and everything. I think you're so incredibly fascinating. You are always, it is like an open invite for you to come back to Shareable anytime you want to talk about stuff. If you're promoting something and you want to like hop on a podcast and talk all about it, you are always welcome here because I think you're just such a joy to talk to. I literally have about 700 more questions for you, but I realize we've been doing this for 56 minutes and um, it's been a wonderful 56 minutes, but I want to uh, respect your time and uh, invite you back for another follow-up to this, but um, I want to give you a chance at this time in the show to, to let people know anything you want to let them know, something that you're promoting, where they can work with you, how they can hire you, where they can find you on social media or whatever else you want to talk about. I, I hand the mic over to you. It's your show at this point. Thank you. I so appreciate it. And I would love to come back for a conversation. I think you ask incredibly great questions that make me think a little differently too. So I'm like, oh, I got to write some of this down, make sure I don't forget it. Um, but where people can find me. So if a company is interested in leadership development or inclusive leadership, you can reach out at Christina at thenewquo.com to my email. You could go on my website, thenewquo.com. I also do public speaking and I speak on culture change and leadership. So happy to talk to you about an event or anything else where you need somebody to come speak on these things. And you can also follow my pod, Sway Them in Color. It's on Spotify and Apple. And I have a paper about narrative intelligence, which I guess we could put in the show notes. Um, yeah, so people can read a bit more about what is this thing we keep talking about? They're probably like, what the hell is narrative intelligence? Um, it gives a bit more of an overview and definitions. And there's a quiz that you can take to test where your level of narrative intelligence is right now. So I think it's, it's fun and insightful. Well, who doesn't like a quiz? Everyone loves quizzes. I love quizzes. Um, <laughs> I'll just add one more plug that if um, if you do decide, which I encourage you to, to follow Christina on any of her social medias, which by the way, my absolute, you're like one of three reasons I go to Facebook. I <laughs> I'm not even about that place anymore. It was a toxic cesspool. But I see you post something. I'm like, ooh, it's gonna be good. And Facebook knows it too. You're like the first or second thing I always see when I sign in. So but anyway, back to my original point. If you follow Christina on social media and you see that she is doing a workshop of any sort that is open for you to register for, please, for the love of God, it is worth every penny of your monies and every minute of your time to do it. It was a really super enjoyable experience when I did it. And I would strongly encourage you to do it. So please do that. And all of the things I'm putting in the show notes, click on them, do them, listen to her podcast, hear her beautiful voice when she sings. Uh, Christina, you've been absolutely phenomenal guest. You're coming back anytime you want to. And this episode, 
as, as much as any of the 120 some odd before this, um, is something that you should tell other people about. It's something that you should share with them, which I guess makes this episode shareable.